Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. Bessemer, Alabama should be top of the mind today for every progressive and working person in America. The National Labor Relations Board has begun counting the votes to see whether workers at Amazon's giant fulfillment center in Bessemer have decided to unionize. Amazon has fought tooth and nail to intimidate its workers out of supporting the union. They have spied and they have lied. And when all of that wasn't enough, they got the city of Bessemer to shorten the timing of the traffic lights outside the warehouse so organizers would not have time to appeal to workers while they waited for the red light to change. They've intimidated. They've sent relentless texts and set up non-labor compliant voting facilities. Have you no shame, Jeff Bezos? Richest man in America? Nobody really expected a fair fight. Neither the history of corporate America nor the grubby greed of Amazon would lead you to hope for that. But wow, just a shred of decency might have been nice since all eyes are on you. So the fact that we have come this far is a testament to the courage of the workers and the grit of the organizers from the retail, wholesale, and department store union, RWDSU. Win or lose, they have already accomplished a lot. And as we wait for the votes to be counted, now is a beautiful time to thank them. So thank them. Go online, share, thank these workers. Because they have torn down the curtain behind which Amazon was hiding. It's the same curtain behind which you can find the racist, misogynistic algorithms of Google or the cynical and selfish data hoarding of Facebook. And of course, the rank exploitation of workers by Uber and the other gig employment apps. The workers of Bessemer have torn down the idea that these tech giants are somehow different from the exploiters of the 20th century because maybe some of them donate to Democrats or even identify with Democrats or say they're woke. Maybe Jeff Bezos believes that, but the workers of Bessemer have shown that's a crock. A hundred years ago, Jeff Bezos would have been one of the copper bosses who shot Joe Hill. You know the town of Bessemer? It has a long history and noble tradition of fighting for labor rights and civil rights. Before the annihilation of labor in the South, there were once union mines and union mills in Bessemer. And right now, actually, there are still union poultry plants up the road from Amazon. And of course, Bessemer was much on the mind of Martin Luther King when he said that the best road out of poverty is the union. This fight is bigger than one Amazon warehouse. It is way bigger. The fight is about restoring respect to working people and taking power back into our hands. It is symbolic. It is about recognizing that the way to win respect is to demand it, not ask for it. You know, Amazon really revealed its truth when they told workers they should vote down the union because the company would give them better wages and benefits without the union because that's always happened. That kind of paternalism has been the enemy going way back more than 100 years. This isn't just about wages and benefits. And the company's failure even to say so seemed to prove the point that they don't get it at all. Or maybe they really do. This whole fight was brought on by the way Amazon treated its employees during a pandemic, during an economic crisis. Their frontline workers the way it exposed them to COVID and worked them and monitored them relentlessly, created inhumane working conditions and fired them for speaking up. 
it is no coincidence today that Germany, in Germany, Amazon workers went on strike. And last week, Amazon workers struck in Italy. Amazon workers are already unionized in both of those countries and they are striking. I want you to read part or hear part of the statement from the president of the Retail Wholesale and Department Store Union, RWDSU, Stuart Applebaum of New York. Quote, it's not just workers in Alabama, it's workers everywhere who are saying to Jeff Bezos that enough is enough. No matter what language they speak, Amazon workers around the globe will not stand for the working conditions they've been forced to endure for too long. Last week, it was Italian workers. This week, it's German workers. And the union vote count gets underway for Alabama workers. What unites them all are the unacceptable working conditions at Amazon facilities everywhere. So let's be clear. These abysmal working conditions are not some unfortunate after effect. They are the way Amazon does business globally. And that is why the working class fight is a global fight. We are all interconnected because they are all interconnected. Amazon should pay better. And God knows it's billions in pandemic profit would allow them to do so. But this isn't just about money and pay. It is about power, plain and simple. If the company has the power to give you good wages, then it has the power to take them away. And even more to this point, this company demands blood for those wages. Treating its employees the way it treats the robots who work at their sides, as cogs in the machine, in a giant machine. It's ugly and it's dehumanizing. It is inhumane. Amazon proved during the pandemic that it isn't going to do the right thing unless it is forced to do the right thing. And maybe not even so. And that is why this union is important. That is what the union is for. And that is why this fight is seismic. It's symbolic. Win or lose, it'll inspire so many others to organize because after the Bessemer workers win this vote and force Amazon to do the right thing, what comes after that is to rebuild a labor movement that can force America to do the right thing. We have an amazing show today. Uh, very excited to have the one and only former Amazon worker, Chris Smalls. He's gonna be talking about his fight over the last year since he got fired from Amazon in Staten Island for speaking up. And then later we have Joshua Con Russell and Napoleon DeLegend to talk about the news of the day. Stick around. We'll be right back. Very excited. Hey guys, welcome back. So uh, you may know about our book club. Uh, it is the Nomi Show Book Club. We are well into, well, actually we're only a couple days out of uh, the month of March where we have been covering four books. Uh, Capital is Dead, that interview is up. That was our main book of the month for the book club is by Mackenzie Wark. It's fascinating, actually very, uh, I can't see it, it's, it's mirrored, but um, very relevant to this big tech conversation because of the way that tech has shifted capitalism or has created something kind of like beyond capitalism, I guess is the best way of describing it because capitalism does exist and there's also this alternative version. Uh, that interview is up and we are about to post the interview with Catherine Frankie uh, who wrote Repair, Redeeming the Promise of Abolition, a fascinating book about uh, abolition. It was, it was, I think, International Abolition Day uh, last week. Really interesting read, fascinating about how sometimes 
towns and some regions of the country, uh, Mississippi, part of South Carolina, took matters into their own hands and actually uh, created a pretty strong abolition community. Uh, but, you know, of course, capital came in and like wiped that out. Go check out our book club. It is at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. There are three different levels, one book a month, two books a month, and four books a month. The other books we have on the list this month are The Corona Crash by Grace Blakely, Rent Your Capitalism by Brett Christophers, and Hostile Environment by Maya Goodfellow. Those are the books for March. All right. Chris Smalls, the one, the only Chris Smalls. Of course, Chris is a an organizer, a very well-known organizer. Uh, he now, he's a former Amazon employee. He's the founder of the Congress of Essential Workers. And he has a new podcast, a new show. Very exciting. Uh, hang on a second. Let me get the actual. It's at youtube.com. ISS is a Smalls World. You got it right there. Uh, it's, an, it's a newish podcast. And uh, it's very cool. You just interviewed Sarah Nelson, our favorite, the beautiful, wonderful, brilliant Sarah Nelson, who is the president of the Flight Attendance Workers Union part of CWA. Chris, thanks for joining on this very historic day. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I'm, I just left my rally, so I'm still post-rally right now. That's good. We like that energy. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Post-rally energy is like a special energy. So. Oh, yeah. Definitely, Fantastic. definitely. I'm excited. So I want to just uh, recap about, you know, it's been a year now, right? Since um, the pandemic hit, since you <laughs> spoke up uh, as a worker at Amazon in, in Staten Island. Uh, can we can you just remind folks what, what happened to you? I know you've told the story a million times, but I think in this moment, as folks are in Bessemer, uh, the votes being counted, it's important to, to recognize the material conditions of what was happening on the ground as the world was panicking, afraid right. to touch things, afraid to like, you know, every, there were so many fears we didn't even understand the pandemic. And how did Amazon treat you guys? Right. Yeah. Um, this just reminds me even, like you mentioned, being one year to the day uh, when I was fired, it just took me back to that place, that, uh, that moment when uh, we were out there raising health and safety concerns initially. And um, I think the Union Drive actually started around the same time because that building down there in Bessemer actually launched in March. So it all ties together. It all interconnects. And um, I'm just happy that I'm out here even a year later still advocating and speaking up for these workers out here in for Amazon. And uh, on the brink of probably the most historical drive since the 1930s, um, either way this vote goes, it's going to galvanize us workers. And I want to definitely uplift the spirits today on the, on the day where the, the vote is actually closed up. So uh, it was great to be out here in New York and, um, and at my former facility. So um, I'm happy to do this. So, so what was happening on the ground when you were working? I mean, uh, yeah. what kind of conditions, what was Amazon doing uh, that, that pushed you to speak up and others to speak up as well? So when uh, the virus hit last year, uh, New York City was the epic center. People were dying every 15 minutes. And what I saw at work was my coworkers getting sick in a domino effect, flu-like symptoms, dizziness, fatigue. Every day was something different. Uh, or people weren't showing up at all, which was even more alarming because we're talking about my, my supervisors, uh, the people, my colleagues that I work hand in hand with, they were showing up sick or not showing up at all. And it was a very eerie feeling. You know, something was wrong and we were unprotected. We had no PPE. 
no facial masks, no cleaning supplies. And we're being told we're an essential worker, but we're not being treated as such. And that's what forced me to take further action. And I, I tried to go through the proper channels at first, but after a whole week of doing that, sitting in the break room for 10 hours a day with fellow workers of mine, uh, several of us, we got nowhere, we got no response. And they decided to quarantine me and put a target on me to try to stop me from organizing. So um, that walkout exactly to the day, March 30th last year, two hours after that walkout, that's when I was terminated. Two hours after the walkout. Um, and how many people walked out when, and, and, you know, just, just to actually, remember guys, everyone was ordering their PPE on Amazon. Like Amazon was the distributor. I mean, they were, they were, they had, if anybody could get access to PPE, it's Amazon. Just as a side note, um, how many people walked out that day? That day was a good 50 to 60 associates. You know, um, I know the Amazon spokespeople, they always downplay it. But there's plenty of uh, photos and videos that, that everybody can refer to. You know, we planned this strategically down to the T, down to the timing. And uh, we had about 50 to 60 people walk out with us and, um, and, and tell their stories. They went right over to the media that was there on the ground and told their stories. And, and that's how everything started from there. Did you have union support at that time? Where it was, did you, where had you been in touch with union organizers? Is this just independent? No, that's the most amazing thing about it. We didn't, we didn't have any support. It was just workers driven. And uh, this year, uh, when we returned today, we had some unions that, that showed up and represented the workers and, and stood in solidarity with the workers. So it was great to see that. So after you were terminated, um, there, I think it was a few weeks or months after, uh, there were things that were leaked about how the Amazon seniority all the way at the top uh, was was illustrating who you are. So can you, can you and, and maybe you could put that uh, article up on screen, but can you talk about what happened with uh, the, the, the senior leadership? Senior, like global company, had to say oh, about yeah. you, had to say about you. Yeah, we're talking about uh, all the way up to the, to the highest peak, you know, Jeff Bezos himself. Um, this was actually about a week after I was fired. Jeff Bezos himself with his top general counsel, David Sapolsky, which is, I believe, their general counsel for the company. Um, they decided to run a smear campaign on me, calling me not smart or articulate, you know, ironically, to make me the face of the whole unionizing efforts against Amazon. And, um, you know, they'd rather answer questions about diminishing my character than to answer questions about their own health and safety concerns of their own warehouse workers, which is a shame. And how did, I mean, did, did you have any response? Was like, was, is, is there any sort of like, I mean, you, you've been terminated, number one. Uh, yeah. I imagine there's some sort of legal uh, response you could make there. But then to be smeared like that in a very public way, um, is there anything legally you can do? So yes, uh, on behalf of, you know, Letitia James from the New York Attorney General's office, they've been investigating on my behalf and several other workers as well. But I've also filed my own uh, civil suit, which is a class action lawsuit uh, for discrimination and also for the class, the people that were affected. And, um, you know, besides that, you know, my activism spoke for itself. You know, uh, I wouldn't have found this organization had any of that didn't happen. So I've been happy to travel the country with this amazing organization. And we protest in front of every Jeff Bezos uh, mansion to let them know that, you know, 
we are very smart and articulate. And uh, you're never going to stop and smear any of us anymore because we're not going to allow that to happen. We're going to hold you accountable. Oh, man, it's just, it's, it's like absolutely effing ridiculous that they got away with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so what have you learned about organizing over the last year? I think I always find it magical when workers get angry, upset, and of course, unions have been under, under attack for the last 30 years, so they're weaker than they've ever been. Um, and the conditions are worsening as a result. And when they self-organize and just the, the arc of what you can learn about organizing over, over a year must be magnificent. So would you mind sharing some of the lessons? Man, oh, yeah, I had to be a fast learner. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I, um, I lost a lot of sleep. And, um, you know, organizing is, is it's a 24-7 job. You know, you organize 24-7. You know, I talk to people from all over the world now. Uh, Zoom obviously made the world a lot smaller. And uh, the type of organizing we're doing in the 21st century, you know, you got to adapt. You got to fight power with power. So what I've learned, um, yeah, I just learned that the power of people, it overcomes everything. You know, for me to be sitting here a year later, um, I was unemployed. I'm still unemployed. But I still was able to do what I had to do when it comes to activism and organizing because the community uplifts and the community supports that. So without the community, you have nothing. And I, I learned that very quickly, that you can't rely on these 1% class. You can't rely on these billionaires. You can't, you can't even rely on our politicians, our elected officials. They all failed us, and they all continue to fail us. So what we have at the end of the day is ourselves, and the revolution starts with ourselves. So that's what I learned. Um, let's talk about what's happening in Bessemer today. How are you feeling? What, what do you think is, is uh, how, how do you think it's going to go down? Um, to be honest with you, I mean, uh, we already won, you know, whether they win or lose, we won because we reached a plateau that was never reached. You know, we already, uh, to even get to a union vote and be talked about as much as it has, it reached the president's desk, our chief and commander, um, who, who could have ever imagined? You know, we're talking about a company that's been anti-union for 27 years. So we already won. You know, whether they get the vote or not passed, we already galvanized the, the rest of the country, if not the entire world. The world is watching this vote. And um, we're, we're going to continue. We're going to continue the efforts, whether we win or lose. Um, I think other buildings will try, and some buildings will succeed. Maybe all of them will succeed, and that's what we hope for. Do you know who's starting to organize right now? you have any sort of projection, or is that top secret? New York, Staten Island. We starting to, we starting to organize, and uh, we will be going public soon. I know I have plenty of workers in there that's ready to organize. So once we find out which union we're going to, you know, represent to have represent the workers, or whether we're going to go the independent route, we can't wait to announce that. But I can tell you now, it's going to happen right here in New York. I mean, it's, it's, this is what I find so interesting. <clears throat> I think a lot of people are curious about this too. Like why some union, like what is it that draws workers to some union or another? Like why was it RWDSU, which is based in New York, Stuart Applebaum, the president's in New York. Um, yeah. Why like do some of these unions align with certain places? And like, what, what, is, what is that connection? Well, the beauty of it is that with Amazon, you know, each facility has its choice to choose any union. So whatever union is in that area that's doing great work, they want to go with that one. 
And that's what happened in Alabama. Uh, the RWDSU, uh, they, they are already unionized at a lot of the poultry factories down there. So the surrounding areas are already a part of this union. And the union looked at Amazon as a, pop, a perfect opportunity. Uh, the workers actually went to that union. It was the opposite of the way, actually. The workers went to that union saying, hey, we already know about you, your history, especially here in Alabama with the other factories. We, we, we know the treatment. They're being paid well. They're being protected. They, they absolutely fought for some of the workers' jobs because some of the organizers actually were uh, employees of poultry factories that had to go through their own arbitrations and that union represented them. So uh, the beauty about it is you're able to choose what union in the area represents you the best. And the, the, uh, up here in New York, you know, we have several different unions to choose from. So that's just the thing that we have to do. We have to find out what union is going to represent the workers' demands and the worker rights in that area, specific area, the best. And that's what's the one you want to go with. Do they prepare you for the intimidation tactics, the union busting tactics? Do they do they sort of like educate workers before, I mean, forget about a vote, just just the, the process of organizing to get to a vote? Um, the intimidation factor is, is with Amazon from day one. And it may not be directly, but um, I could tell you with their training classes, you know, even their safety classes, they try to implement little union busting things, you know, see something, say something. Um, like somebody what? Even... When you say see something, say something, like what do they want you yeah. to they like, want your workers to be divided. You know, they want the workers to start telling on each other, you know, getting other workers in trouble. You know, and my thing is, you know, why would I want to get somebody in trouble that's on the same level as me? Um, this job is everything. We're working paycheck to paycheck. So even as a supervisor, I never implemented any of these, you know, scare tactics. I never tracked people, even though I did track people. You know, I had to do that as a job. I never reported anybody coming back from late, you know, late from break. I never was on top of them because I came from that position, number one. And number two, you know, this is our, this is our livelihood. These people survive over this job. Who am I to take that away from them? And um, I understand what they're going through physically and mentally. Um, management don't. You know, management, they're getting paid salary. They're getting paid all the stocks. They get all the incentives. We don't get any of that things, uh, any of these things as entry level workers and hourly workers. So I would never side with management. And that's why it was easy for me to take my stance and uh, easy for me to fight back the way I am because I never was a part of that culture. What are some of the worst things you're hearing from Bessemer right now in terms of intimidation tactics? I mean, we've, we've heard some of the stuff like they're being monitored and, and like the traffic lights changing, but have you heard some of the other details? Yeah. When I was down there, um, we I spoke to some workers. Uh, besides, they handing out little pens, you know, that say "vote no." So I shared a couple of photos of that as well. They handing out stickers, banners, and stuff. Um, they put these workers. They had put them in um, in uh, classrooms, four classes a day, and one shift. Your shift, whether it's eight to ten hours, they put you in four classes, broke you down into groups of twenty, and sometimes even smaller groups of that and just drilled nothing but, you know, non-facts about union. Wait, so this is instead of working? So like you show, up, to you show up to work and yeah. you're supposed to do your job. And instead of doing your job, they're like, oh, guess what? Job's canceled today. You're going to sit through like four propaganda classes. Yep. 
Absolutely. And I was told that from several workers. And um, it's true. It's very much true. Even that's a violation. Like, I assume a violation of labor law. Like, you're hired, contract or not, you're hired to do something specific. And now you're doing another job, which is propaganda. I don't, I mean, I'm not a labor attorney. Oh, so yeah. I'm sure they have yeah. loopholes there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And how do, I mean, do, do workers. Money. Or money. Exactly. Are, are workers feeling exhausted? Are they just like, I'm. I'm done with this. It's not working. Like, have you, did you meet any workers who were like, I'm not voting for the union? Is it working at all? Any of their tactics? I have. I have I've met workers that said, you know, um, I don't care. I don't care about How it. How do you not um, care? I met workers that said, you know, they, they just, they don't care about it. They don't, they just don't, they're disconnected. Um, they're disconnected. You know, it's, it's a lot of misinformation. And uh, yes, they are exhausted mentally as well. They're being torn. You know, you go to work and um, like I said, you're being put in four classes and then you, as soon as you leave out of work, you're seeing nothing but banners that say pro-union and uh, organizers on the corner. Um, imagine what you're going through day to day. You know, you, it, it's, it's definitely uh, pulling teeth. And um, I couldn't imagine it working there right now, especially with all the scrutiny and all the eyes that's on that building. Um, it's a lot of pressure as a, just a normal worker. It's a lot of pressure. So uh, uh, my hat's off to them for even, you know, sticking all the way through and, and voting. Um, have people quit? Have you gotten a sense that like folks are quitting just because they're sick of this? Well, I will hope not because uh, Amazon, Amazon did offer $2,000 for people to quit. And, and be rehired after the, the union vote. So that's really? another tactic that they're using, to, you know, against these workers. They, they're paying them $2,000 to resign and then be rehired after the union vote. But don't participate in the union vote, basically. That's unbelievable. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. And meanwhile, like, I, I mean, I have no idea what the pay would be during the period of the vote or how long that would be or, or I, I have no sense. But... Um, Interesting. And overall, like in terms of the energy on the ground, like percentage wise, what do you feel the workers are like? Do, do they, this percentage feels inspired. This percentage said exhausted, but just like does maybe support the union. This percentage doesn't care, you know, apathetic. And then pro, pro uh, Amazon. To be honest with you, I, I, you know, my opinion, it was probably 50 50. And I know 50 50 sounds bad. In a sense, because it is a 50 50 with Amazon. Um, yeah. But you have to face the reality of the situation as well. I always look at the pros and the cons. And the cons is that, once again, there's a lot of misinformation being thrown out as, towards these workers every single day. It's 24 7. That, that building never closed. Um, that's 24 7 propaganda. And then on top of that, um, you know, just think about it. These workers don't come home and turn on CNN, and turn on the news, and turn on the Nomi Key show. They don't go on Twitter like we do and post and share. They don't do that. These workers come home and go to sleep because they got to get up and go to work again. Um, even all the politicians that went down there and prominent people that went down there, um, that means nothing if it don't reach the workers. And that's the that's the, that's the opportunity opportunities that we have to think about as well. How do you reach workers that have to work 10, 11, 12 hours a day and then come home 
to their families and then go to bed and rinse and repeat and do that again. So I hope that me traveling down there with other workers and telling our story, uh, that, that helped resonate a little bit. Workers connecting with workers. Workers connecting with workers. I love that. No, you're right. I mean, it's, it's, we, I think we and the, and the, 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 the group that's, you know, constantly engaged in media and, and movement stuff. Um, yeah. Sometimes underestimate like our reach or overestimate our reach, excuse me, including politicians. And sometimes politicians do it because oh, yeah. they want to build a brand or they want to raise money or, or they have the right intention. They want to be there in solidarity, but it doesn't always necessarily translate to moving people. Um, when does the vote end? Like, when does the when do the votes get tallied? Do we have a sense of when we'll find out? I believe they're being tallied right now, unless there's any discrepancies on either side, yeah. which I'm pretty sure there is. Um, it's possibly to be delayed. I'm hoping that we'll hear some type of preliminary uh, voting result uh, within the next couple of days. If not, um, we might have to wait until about Easter. Maybe we'll have some good news for Easter. Um, and is it just like anything over 51, 50%? Like what is, how does the vote break down? What does it have to be? Yeah, I believe so. I believe, you know, um, majority rules and, um, you know, whether it's one over 50, <laughs> whatever side is on it, who wins. It's amazing. Chris, um, okay. Before we wrap up, tell us about your podcast. Tell us, tell us about your show. Sure. It's a small world. Um, tune in. It's on YouTube. It's free. We also have a Patreon set up for those who can contribute. Help us get our get our foot on the ground, our grassroots in the podcast world. Just launched a, a few months ago, and we had the pleasure to have Sarah Nelson on as our last guest. And um, we had a lot of prominent people on. Harvey K is another one. Look at that guy. Um, Look we have him. actual Amazon workers on there all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. And know me, Gee, I got to get you on there, too. So clear your schedule up. I'm going to definitely reach out to you. <laughs> Anytime. We'll get you on there. But, yeah, please follow the show. It's a great show. Um, and I love to be a part of it every weekend. Every weekend. Look at that one. I love this one. Chris on how to negotiate. This is the stuff I love. Oh, Blakely. Oh, we love Blakely. Blakely from New York. Oh, great, great, oh, great yeah. guests. Brilliant guests. Fantastic. Chris Smalls. Thanks it for your work. actually my co-host. Wait, Blakely's your co-host? Get out! Blakely, Blakely is, is, is a great New York activist. Very great New York oh, activist. Oh, yeah. Love it. I'm glad that you guys have teamed up. Ab absolutely. Ab Chris, always so great to talk to you. Thank you for fighting for so many workers across the country, not just Amazon workers, but like what you did was courageous and has inspired other people. And you know that Bessemer, win or lose, is inspiring others to do this. And it's really about transforming. I don't have to tell you this. I'm just saying it because it has to be said. You know, it's about transforming yeah. the labor movement from the ground up and rebuilding the labor movement and strengthening it. And, you know, integrating it back into the infrastructure of American politics, not something that's beholden to the American political system. So thank you for what you do, for the courage, uh, for fighting, and and for inspiring so many other people to to organize. Thanks, Chris. Thank Smalls. you. Thank you for having me. Always thank pleasure. Good luck today. And, you know, we'll see. Hopefully we get a good result in the next couple of days. Absolutely. All right. All right, thank everybody. You. We'll be right back with our amazing panel. Our amazing panel of Joshua Con Russell and Napoleon De Legend talking about today's news. BRB.
thinking like, I'm gonna Medici this shit. Napoleon, what's it gonna take for us to get a song? <laughs> Talking about you. I, I I got you. You just gotta let me know what you need. You uh, know? I don't know. Anything, whatever you're feeling. Okay, going, okay. You're the you're the expert. I got I'm down. You. I'm gonna right. teach you I, this shit. Like I have I'm, some sort I'm, of. I'm, I'm gonna think about it in the next few weeks. Okay. <gasps> Yay! <laughs> little like a little reset. Maybe we'll do like a little rebranding. All, All right. right. You're gonna inspire me. It'll be like a whole makeover. Cool. <laughs> the Nomi. I dyed my hair. Like we're just gonna do a whole. I love it. I love it. All right, Napoleon Good DeLegend, deal. of course, regular of the Nomi He Show, hip hop artist, activist, brilliant uh, speaker of all things. <laughs> and Joshua Con Russell wearing his TMBS shirt, giving uh, the Michael Brooks show some love. I have one of those shirts. I've got to wear it one day, actually. Um, great to see I you, have Joshua. Mine too. Yeah, we should all, we should coordinate. Just a special day, yes. Joshua Con Russell is executive director of the Wildfire Project. Hello, Joshua. Let hey. him know see. Good to see you again. <laughs> uh, if you follow us on Instagram, Joshua and I chilled in the Redwoods this weekend. It was really fun. We are no longer in the same city, but I recognize those plants behind you, Joshua. <laughs> Restorative. <laughs> you are a, like, you understand horticulture, an intuitive level like I've never seen before. So I don't know if I'm allowed to tell that secret, but. All good. Yeah, I mean, what I would say, they're just relationships, you know? You just gotta take care of your relationships, whether they're with plants or people. Just just that easy, guys. It's really easy <laughs> to just deal with people and plants. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, today, uh, or yesterday, excuse me, was the first day of the murder trial of Derek Chauvin, the person who is on trial, let's just remind everybody, he is on trial for murdering George Floyd. Uh, let's play this video real quick. You're also <laughs> gonna learn that the officers take an oath when they become police officers. They take an oath that I will enforce the law courteously and appropriately. And as you will learn, as applies to this case, never employing unnecessary force or violence, because you will learn that on May 25th of 2020, Mr. Derek Chauvin betrayed this badge when he used excessive and unreasonable force upon the body of Mr. George Floyd. And you will learn that Derek Chauvin did exactly what he had been trained to do over the course of his 19-year career. The use of force is not attractive, but it is a necessary component of policing. The force. All right, so those were parts of the opening remarks uh, for defense and prosecution of the officer who murdered, uh, I, obviously murdered uh, George Floyd. I, I kind of want to talk about how the media has been portraying this. Um, not that we need to say this to folks, but uh, largest uprising in American history happening during a pandemic, folks showing up, up across the world in solidarity with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, and really the whole movement for Black lives in response to police brutality against people of color, indigenous people. You know, this is something, it was a massive education for, for many people in this country who did not understand the complexities of racism within police uh, and, and, and white supremacy, let's just be very clear. So with all that being said, 
for the most part, the media has made this about George Floyd and not about the officer who held him down for almost 10 minutes. Um, Napoleon, I mean, we, we, it shouldn't surprise us, but I, like, this is, this is, it's grotesque, I assume, but, but, but why do you think it's so hard after all of that for folks to shift their, their, their language, just this, the slightest bit? Um, why do you think that police are still deified, even in the media? I mean, I, I guess it's it's just uh, it's white supremacy. It's it's the propaganda. It's it's very entrenched and it's obviously very very strong. And um, I mean, I, I'm I'm somebody. I, I've gotten pull, uh, guns pulled on me by by police officers several times. You know, in different cities, whether it was in Washington D.C., in Brooklyn, and things like that. So it's and it's something that happened to to a lot of my friends, or worse. You know what I'm saying? So it's it's. It's being exposed and, and the world is watching and it's an opportunity right now to, to kind of set precedence because already a lot of people don't trust the inter institution of policing as a whole in, in America. And it's, it's we're watching now the justice system to see if that actually works, because where's the accountability when it comes to that? And it's ironic when, when, when the, 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 the defendant, the, the, the lawyer who's defending uh, the, the police officer is saying, uh, that was like 19 years worth of training. So they're training you to, to, to for, for that, for, for that to happen. Like that, that should be embarrassing to even say that because it's like, so there's a problem with the, if that, if he's following protocol, then you're obviously saying there's a huge problem and, and you're using that as a, as a defense for, for a killing. So. That's interesting. So he was essentially the, the, the defense attorney was essentially blaming the training for his, uh, for his conduct, blaming the police force's training. And of course, you have to remember that the police force is actually part of this defense system. The police force is, it pays for, you know, supporting their officers, the police union, um, for supporting their officers. And, and like, really, I mean, they go, they, they do everything they can to protect them. Immunity, qualified immunity. I mean, we know, we know the list, like putting them on, on paid leave, uh, you know, not being able to fire officers who murder people. Joshua, I mean, what's your take on this? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely worth underscoring that was such a tell when he was like, this is what he was trying to do. I, I mean, like, realize, I don't think he realized what he was saying in that. But I, I also just first want to say how um, uplifting it's been to see rallies in most major cities in this country today and yesterday. Um, and so if, if you need your spirits raised a little bit, um, it's really worth checking out. Uh, there's probably one in your city if you live in a city. Um, but watching the defense uh, has, been, has just like made my blood boil. And, you know, what, what you're asking about, the, the tactic of putting the victim on trial and, and blaming George Floyd in this case is used so often because it works, you know, and, and especially blaming black people for their own suffering is in the muscle memory of this society. It is, um, it is a default state of being, right? Um, my hope is that, uh, like you were saying, is, is that the, you know, that the movement for black lives has sufficiently changed the terrain where uh, it doesn't have the same hold in the public narrative. Um, I haven't seen all, all of the media in the last day, but I do know that there's at least a strong counter narrative critiquing this uh, in a way that, certainly wouldn't have been the case 10 years ago. Uh, and so 
you know, either way, it, it's on social movements to create the conditions in society where this uh, stops working, right? And, you know, the other thing is that when, when the defense wasn't focused on blaming George Floyd for his own death, they were claiming Chauvin was like, you know, like he was distracted because he was a victim, right? People were yelling at him while he had his knee on the neck of a man because they were yelling at him to stop, right? Um, and that was distracting him, right? And um, despite the fact that this is a guy who has regular complaints of excessive force throughout his entire career for almost 20 years, right? He kept his knee on George Floyd's neck for a full three minutes after he stopped breathing, right? Um, and so the, the flip of, um, you know, turning the cop into the victim is, is an amazing set of gymnastics that usually just flies under the radar. But I, I'm very curious to see, you know, how, how much traction it's going to have overall now, because the consequence of the movement for black lives in at least shaping public discourse has been uh, huge in, in a lot of different ways, but um, we'll see how the trial unfolds, I guess. I mean, even just the jury, it's like, how can you have a jury that did not understand what happened? Uh, it's such a it's such a peculiar uh, trial. I mean, the the judge is is known to be very fair on this, and he's been pretty vocal actually about uh, you know what what is admissible and what is not. Um, I'm very curious if just how the media portrays it comes up in any way, if it's relevant in any way. I mean, it wouldn't be with the jury, but like I'm very curious if like that will in some way frame the way. Like if 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 how we talk about victims in society of police of, of you know, specifically people of color who are victims that are victims of police force. I'm, I'm curious if the, that framing comes up in the trial at all. And it, it teaches the jurors to even think like we are so preconditioned that you just stop for a second. We have the facts of the case, but I want to teach you how to assess these facts. Does that make sense? And, and, and like, haven't we just seen like two uh, mass shootings where, uh, the, the shooters weren't black and they're just being handcuffed and taken to jail. And it's, it's just like, <laughs> these are people who are shown to be dangerous just a few minutes or a few hours prior, whatever. I didn't follow that closely. This, this was a non-violent offense. It had nothing to do with it. How does it warrant like some, some modern day lynching, you know? It's, it, it's, it's just, we see the examples, it's, it, it, it's so obvious, it's, 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 it's frustrating even to talk about it. That, and, and you're right, we do have to educate people, but it's, it's frustrating that this even has to be done because it's right there in your face. Like there's, there's two justice systems, there's, there's one for, for blacks and one for, you know, and whatever, and minorities or whatever. And another, if you're not, you, you're able to get away with crimes like that and you get treated well by the police. You get defended, I mean, the guy that... <laughs> They admitted their crimes, these mass shooters, these white men admitted their crimes openly. It, for whatever rationale, doesn't even matter what the rationale is. It's not, it's still a hate crime, a hate crime against women, a hate crime. Whatever your, your problem is with your sexual, doesn't matter. It's a hate crime. Hate crime against women, hate crime against, legally against women. Still up for debate about the Asian community, unfortunately, legally, but it should be a hate crime. And yet you have an officer, a uh, 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 a sheriff <laughs> who uh, commiserates with the murderer. Okay, uh, let's move on to Florida. <laughs> Our favorite governor, DeSantis, uh, is, is, has some thoughts about the new vaccine uh, passport recommendations. This vaccine passport, of course, uh, would 
allow you to go to certain events. Um, you all you have to do is show that you've had the vaccine, um, and you're able to go to events. You're able to get on a plane. You're in public places. You know, public safety during a pandemic. But isn't it interesting that the people like didn't like masks because it was infringing on their freedom? Um, suddenly you're thinking like passports are infringing on their freedom. Let's play this clip. You want the fox to guard the hen house? I mean, give me a break. I think this is something that has huge privacy implications. It is not necessary to do. You know, we're going to have hit three and a half million seniors that have gotten shots uh, uh, sometime this week, likely 75% of seniors. It's important to be able to do it. But at the same time, uh, we are not going to have you provide proof of this just to be able to live your life normally. And I'm going to be taking some action in, in an executive function, emergency function here very shortly. I, I just wish that like he he would use his emergency powers for, you know, really important things like uh, when there's a disaster, uh, you know, f funding on the ground because, you know, they have hurricanes all the time and floodings and tornadoes. Oh, no, 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 no. He, he's this is an emergency, guys. It's an emergency that you don't get a vaccine, not to mention you're forced to take vaccines to go to public schools. Napoleon. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just, that's that's what they're good at, you know, just creating a preemptively creating an outrage for something that um, I don't know if it's really implemented yet, if we know what it's going to be implemented for, whatever. It's, it's funny, like, for somebody like me who's traveled to Africa many times, right, when I have to go back to the Comoros, I have a, a vaccination card. What's the difference between calling it a passport or a vaccination card? And I don't think I could have traveled to certain places without it. So de facto is the same thing. And so he, he assumes that Floridians won't want to travel overseas where they have their own set of rules and probably were going to demand some sort of uh, proof because, and, and so it's like, it, it makes me laugh. Is he, is he not going to go overseas? And he, he not, I bet you he's going to be the first one getting that passport if they, oh, if yeah. they make it mandatory. Of That's course. what makes me laugh about the whole thing. The uh, hypocrisy is, is so great. Yeah, well, because you know, it's 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 about freedom, freedom. Um, listen, but voter IDs though that doesn't exactly. infringe on your privacy. Exactly. <laughs> but the passports they really do, the vaccine passports do. That's right. I need to see your genealogy before you vote. Uh, I need to see you know every single aspect, like how many. I mean, let's talk about. You want to talk about freedom? Let's talk about the unaccompanied minors that are trying to find their family right now. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the detention centers in your state, Ron DeSantis, that I have no doubt someone you know is profiting off of right now. Let's talk about that freedom. Joshua. Yeah, I mean, obviously he's doing this in bad faith and pandering to the anti-vax crowd who's, you know, threatened the whole health of the world. Um, and obviously countries and institutions need a way to maintain public safety. I also think there's an interesting conversation that we can, you know, that, that it, it, it is a tricky conversation where there are a lot of different kinds of proposals globally, and I'm not following all of them. And I think it is, and this is not to be clear what DeSantis is saying or doing, but um, it's useful to be cautious about creating a two-tiered system that excludes people who might not have access to the vaccine, especially in other countries where there is a um, huge unjust disparity around access between the global so uh, south and the global north. You know, there's estimates that much of Africa might not have access to the vaccine until 2023. And so questions about how tracking and monitoring are implemented and who's in control of that 
are really important discussions to have. And even in this country, e even if the initial rollout continues to be so comprehensive that, you know, let's say by, you know, by midsummer, everyone who wants to have the vaccine can, um, if the vaccines don't last that long and we need booster shots, right? Um, we're already, there's already uh, reports that Pfizer is planning on this summer, Pfizer, not a, not a health body, a pharmaceutical company will declare the pandemic over and then start charging astronomical prices for the vaccine. And so there is a question about what is the class composition who might have access to um, uh, different kinds of places in the future. And so I think there's really thoughtful conversations we can have about how do we, you know, what, what is the architecture of these kinds of systems? And honestly, like the, the hysteria from the right and from DeSantis is such a distraction from those thoughtful conversations that we could be having. And it makes it about, you know, people's rights to not get vaccinated and all of that kind of garbage. It, it really gets in the way of us as a society having a thoughtful conversation about, about actual freedom. There's, um, yeah, I mean, we're talking about the, the apartheid, the vaccine apartheid, but simultaneously, while, while this is a global issue, uh, our, our, just like every other issue, uh, we are being held hostage by a minority of conservatives who, who, who are not based in science, who are not based in logic, who are, who are attached to uh, conspiracy theories, and now they have lawmakers and government who are empowering them. And so we're, we're completely beholden to that so that we can't have these bigger conversations. But even if we weren't beholden to that, we don't have a political system in which we can have those conversations when you have mm -hmm. a neoliberal class. Mm -hmm. um, Napoleon, I know you wanted to say something. Go for it. No, I mean, I, I agree with what Joshua is saying because th there is a nuance to that conversation, but somebody that jo Josh was talking about it in good faith and DeSantis is obviously talking about it in bad faith. You know, it's like j just different agendas. But uh, I, I was going to bring that up, whereas, you know, it, it, it there, there would be problems. But just DeSantis's argument is just it just falls totally flat anyways, because it's it, even even if there was uh, it, it was infringing in your in your privacy. Uh, I don't think getting a passport is something that would be forced anyways. It would be something somebody would want to get if they want to do certain things or not. But it's, it's a, yeah, it's a, a company's conversation. You know, like airlines might require vaccine passports, rightfully so, if you're going to do domestic flights in this, in this country, if you're a U.S. citizen or if you want to travel to the U.S. Um, you know, it's already... Yes, and that's that's where it plays into the the vaccine apartheid, and maybe there are exceptions to those conditions, or or who knows? I mean, we don't know. It's 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 a it's it's we're still new in these conversations. But go ahead, Joshua. Here, here's also just the the bigger architecture of the conversation is that it, we're talking about regulations. Whether you're talking about regulating business, or whether you're talking about regulating access to things, or regulating you know people's ability to drive and get a driver's license, the right wing has an approach that regulation of any kind is bad. Right. And so that that's the approach, like, you know, having any rules in a society <laughs> are bad, basically. And that, that means voter that IDs. Right. Exactly. There's clear uh, moments of, of hypocrisy, um, <laughs> as opposed to saying a regulation like a rule is <laughs> it depends on the rule. And let's have let's have let's have a conversation about you know, um, towards what end are we creating different guidelines, whether we're regulating people to drive or whether we're regulating people to enter a country with an immunization card or, or regulating a company to dump pollution in a river. Um, the conversation is about the public good and it's about what are the institutions that have the power to, like you need to have a power analysis of the regulation, right? Is there, is this, um, 
you know, a democratic institution, which a government is supposed to be putting a check on on business or or in good faith protecting, um, you know, uh, the public health of its citizenry, or are they, you know, laws in service of oppression and blah, blah, blah. And so to have, if, if the other side of the conversation is just saying all regulations of any kind are bad and that's why, and they're, you know, pass, vaccine passports and are impregnated on freedom, you're not having a conversation. That's not a conversation, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, you're basically saying you don't want to take part in, in, a, in a society because you, you're unwilling to, right. you know, think deeply. And uh, what's the point of being a lawmaker if you're not going to be able to have a real intentional conversation? Um, on the topic of regulate, who are we regulating? What a great transition. You mentioned drivers, Joshua. Uh, our transportation secretary, former McKenzie executive, child of Marxist scholar, uh, the one and only Pete Buttigieg, uh, who speaks 25 languages, sort of, um, he thinks, he thinks that the solution to our infrastructure problem and funding the infrastructure is not in the gas tax, which is already problematic, it is in taxing drivers per mile. Wow, what a thought. Let's play that. said also that a mileage tax showed, quote, a lot of promise as a way to help pay for the plan. Um, that tax would charge people for uh, how many miles they drive. Is that under consideration? No, that, that's not part of the conversation about this infrastructure bill. Uh, so just want to make sure that's, that's really clear. But you will be hearing a lot more details in the coming days about how we envision being able to fund this. And uh, again, uh, these are carefully thought through responsible ideas that ultimately are going to be a win for the economy and need to be compared to the unaffordable cost of the status quo. Okay, so something of a backtrack on, on, on that. Let me Oopsies. Oopsies, thought it was a great idea last week. Got trolled on Twitter. Oopsies. <laughs> I mean, this is our future president, guys. This is who it is. I like this. Actually, I can't wait. I can't wait for someone who is this effing inept at reading the room and like reading society and reading inequality to run for president again because he's going to get dragged. Like, and same thing with, you know, others who have kind of come up to this neoliberal, like, we've appointed you class because you have, you're not tethered to the people. You don't hear what's happening on the ground. You're not feeling what's happening on the ground. If you have to hustle your way up, if you have to like oust Joe Crowley, if you have to oust the IDC, if you have to actually take, a, take on Lacey Clay and you're part of that, that, that progressive force, you have a great sensibility of what is in the ether, what people need, what people are voting on, what people are, are paying attention to. He thought he could get away with this. And oopsies, he went on Twitter. Sorry, I hate him so much. <laughs> Napoleon, what do you think? I mean, it's funny how you said uh, it's going to be a carefully thought through uh, way of funding this. Yeah. And from the fact that the carefully thought through idea from a day ago was already being like um, changed. I mean, th this guy's like a think tank baby, you know, and and he's like, it's like he's so out of touch. It, 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 it's just kind of it's, it's cringy to just watch him squirm and try to get out of his uh, uh, of his own, uh, you know, like talk like problems or whatever he, he he gets on. I mean, it's it's pretty obvious that the money's dead. You just need to tax the people that, you know, have more money and tax people fairly. And it's obvious that taxing people on the road is a regressive tax that's going to be heavier on lower income people than the others. We, we all know this. So, uh, you know, you use your creativity. I, I mean, it's pretty easy to find that solution. 
How about we tax the Amazon, uh, like UPS, Amazon, uh, all these freight, whatever it is, the people who are driving down, uh, you know, who are wrecking our roads. Um, how about we tax, uh, there's some, the automobile industry who, maybe this isn't the best idea, but, but who are pushing automobiles on people or, you know, folks who, the developers were saying, move to the suburbs. Let's just think of all the people who are making it so much more difficult. And, 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 and let's, let's, sorry, let's add that, that the infrastructure in America is like 50 years behind, like a, a lot of other countries. It's like, where's the high speed railways? Where, how do you get around? Like, just, just look at New York. Like it's so clogged. It's like, it, it needs to be modernized in the first place. Yeah. For folks who don't live in New York, I often play the game of what's faster to get to the place I need to go. Taking the subway, which could stall for 30 minutes in the middle of two, between like right four, four feet before the tracks <laughs> or getting in a car and spending $85 to get to my destination or walking across a bridge for an hour and a half. <laughs> Joshua. Joshua, you had some traffic yesterday, right? You hit some traffic? Uh, yeah, just a little bit, but it was, you know, and I mean, we were, we were talking about this yesterday about how in the Bay Area, um, we didn't used to have that much traffic until the advent of Uber and Lyft. And then also with the tech companies moving in, um, this wave of gentrification in the Bay Area meant that a lot of the folks coming in are people who have personal cars, whereas most of the folks before we used to, you know, everybody took public transportation and like, even that basic idea of like, you, you would think that any Democrat in this political environment becoming transportation secretary would have a couple baseline like lenses that they use to view things. And one is like, oh, public infrastructure, like public transportation is the thing that we want to incentivize and encourage. And that and the and the way to fund things, like Napoleon was saying, is is through progressive taxation, not regressive taxation. And the fact that he doesn't even have those two basic lenses of, of focusing on, on individual car drivers when still all of our infrastructure in the society is set up to incentivize people sitting in, in personal cars, which is not efficient or uh, accessible or affordable, um, in, in at least in, on the coast and in the cities. And, and if you're trying to go cross country, um, I know that in lots of, you know, it, it's, it's not like that everywhere, but it's just wild. I, I just don't even understand, you know, sometimes you can look at a politician and understand what, like where they got these, you know, a certain idea. And with Buttigieg consistently, I'm just like, like, it's just like, huh? Like, are you an alien stuffed into a human's body? Like trying to figure out like how, like, it's like he learned how to be human in a, in a, like from a textbook or something. Exactly. I just don't get where these ideas come from. It's like, dude, 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 McKenzie taught me this. <laughs> um, you know, and, and and what really like infuriates me even more is like transportation. Joe Biden, Mr. Amtrak, which which to be fair, he has committed to high speed high speed railroads and funding um, the trains across America. But you know, aside from that, like one of the conversations about uh, the train system is we want high speed rails, but the railways haven't the railroads have not been upgraded to handle the high speed rails. So if you remember a few years ago, there was that huge, oh my goodness, I had friends that were on the train, um, the Acela from New York to DC went off because it was it was speeding, but not at a rate that was everyone's like, that's that's fast. It was like 75 miles per hour instead of don't quote me on this, whatever the the speed limit was, because it took a turn and the railway couldn't handle it. So the amount of infrastructure repair we need because you're sharing these railways with the freight trains, which are heavier, 
it's it's just a joke. It's like well, this is why we need a green new deal. I mean, th- this is why like having a framework to understand rebuilding our infrastructure in a way that is um, both giving you know revitalizing the economy by giving meaningful. Um, uh, uh, working class jobs that that are union that actually bring us towards a post carbon future that doesn't rely on poisoning low income communities and communities of color in order to extract energy, whether that's to power our vehicles or whether that's to power our homes. I mean, it's all it's all there, you know, like the, there is a plan. <laughs> it's called the Green New Deal. <laughs> I mean, the other way of saying it, if 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 like folks who take money from uh, energy companies and oil and gas, you know, maybe the other way of saying it is, how about we just create a new infrastructure um, and make it greener? Like, I know that sounds silly and union jobs, but like maybe it should just be called like union infrastructure deal. By the way, it's green and it eliminates like. <laughs> <laughs> we take the money from the oil and gas companies, but that's just like hidden in the, maybe it's just a rebranding. <laughs> All right. I got to change the name because Green New Deal scares too many people, apparently. Apparently, yeah. It should just be called, you get a job, you get a job, you get a job in faster trains. <laughs> Hire me. Perfect, yeah. <laughs> I'm available. This is your new, yeah, comms consultant for the naming of bills. Everybody wins deal. Like the environment, <laughs> the people, you save time. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. <laughs> when I when I ran for office, we had to come up. It was a special election, and it was a nonpartisan special election. You have to come up with your own party name, and so and it, you know, there's all these rules about it. And I was like, everyone loves pizza party. <laughs> <laughs> this is a little bit of an aside, but I so you know, uh, as as some folks know, a uh, part of my work for uh, for for many years is I train activists in organizing, and. Um, often we'll do when, when we're in trainings activities that elicit power dynamics. And one of the favorite things is like if you play, if you divide the room into two groups, and the first task is to to pick a name for your group. Immediately, all the power dynamics emerge. If you give them like thirty seconds to pick a name, and in it, it's just so interesting to debrief like how they decide a name, what they decide it based on, like who who gets to speak, who doesn't get to speak, how they it, like it, and it's like okay, now let's talk about how you're making decisions when you're building strategy. How are these same like dynamics? But and it's a, it's something as simple as like pick a name because people get so invested in having the right name for a thing, much more so than like it is is the substance of it any good. No, it's, it's true. I mean, even with our show, people say, oh, how creative, the No Mihi show. And I said, you know, I was advised that if you want people to know what the show is, put your name in it. <laughs> you know what? Yeah. Uh, Michael, right. Michael was saying the same thing with the Michael Brooks show. That's it. You know? It's it's mm-hmm. it's a brand. I mean, if you want to carry on the show to somebody else, you can always rebrand later. It's YouTube. It's not like it's MSNBC or something. Um, I want to shift gears if you guys have a little bit more time, because I do want to talk about the Biden administration. This is a topic that's really heavy on my mind right now because I spent two hours on my student loans this morning. Uh, and I mean, I'm. I'm furious at Senator Schumer. The Biden administration is expanding a pause on federal student loan interest. Oh, thank you. Thank you for pausing my 4.5% interest. How about you maybe, I don't know, pause, eliminate student loans. Um, is that, that's a video, right? Let's, let's uh, play that video. We will be expanding the pause on student loan interest and collections to the more than 1 million borrowers 
who are in default on a loan that was made by a private lender in the old bank-based loan program known as the Federal Family Education Loan Program. The step particularly protects 800,000 borrowers who are at risk of having their tax refunds seized. That's actually a pretty significant uh, step. The President continues to call on Congress to cancel $10,000 in debt for student loan borrowers. That's something Congress uh, could take an action on and he'd be happy to sign. We're still taking a closer look at our, our options. Okay, I'm I, like, let's just break this down simply. Oh my God. So Congress, you do your job or I could sign an executive order and just eliminate it all easily with the pen strike. And Senator Schumer's like, oh, you do your job. And then Elizabeth Warren's like, yeah, Schumer, go do your, your job. And meanwhile, Joe Manchin's like, I'm not doing anything. And Schumer's like, I can't do anything because Joe Manchin's saying I can't do anything. Would you guys pick up the power broker and read it and like for two weekends, just read it and remember what LBJ did. He was sitting on the shitter, literally calling people and screaming in the other room, do your job or I'm going to force you to do it and go to Congress and embarrass the shit out of you. That's what I want in my leaders right now, because I just looked at my student loans this morning and I am done guys. I'm done. <laughs> Napoleon. <laughs> I mean, he would look like a superhero if he would cancel it. That's what they want to do. Like cancel it and do those slow motion videos where you're walking out the White House another day at the office. People will love you like, but it takes spine, you know, and, and, and they, they just want to pass the buck. And in the meantime, they're going to give people a little bit of crumbs here and there, you know, and expect us to be like, oh, thank you so much. It's like, get out of here, man. Just master. Thank you, master. Be a leader. When you when you were doing that impression, Nomi, I thought of you know that meme of all the like different Spider Mans pointing at each other. <laughs> it was like that, <laughs> and the I, I mean the excuse making is just I mean and the thing is that you know the when they do give people crumbs, the Democrats are committed to giving crumbs that are just like the most technical weird things that they'll never get credit for, and people won't even understand that they got the benefit in the first place, and and so it's like you're not even building the case that government can actually do something good for people, which is also the bigger picture of like being able to offer leadership in that way, improve people's lives and then take credit for it, is, is also making the broader ideological case that, um, that, that democratic governance can actually um, can improve things, right? It's like they're committed to even when they're trying to improve things, do it in ways that no one will notice or know about in real life other than the, you know, whatever. I don't know the, the what you're talking class. about, Joshua. I think it's a really clever bill to sign called temporarily eliminate student loan interest debt. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and perhaps don't get your, your, your tax refund blocked or something like that, that she added after. It's just so crazy. But I mean, let me understand, like, is this like a donor thing? Like, why doesn't he just stop the debt? It's like, is he, uh, is there somebody like pressuring him not to do it? No, this is the crazy thing about it. They have the authority and the money to do this. And what I really don't understand structurally and, and, and in terms of power and donors is why they don't because it frees up money for people to pay their credit card debt, which is kind of his owner, or like, you know, their, their mortgages or their rent. I mean, there's so many other industries who are so, would be so excited if people didn't have to pay their student loans first because they can't get out of it instead of their rent, their mortgages, uh, their car loans, their credit card bills. I mean, all of these industries are like like drooling, waiting for the minute that that people don't have to pay their student loans. Which federal student loans we have the ability to do so in in a in a sign. I don't I don't get it.
I really don't get it. So it's like the question is, do you hate us, Joe Biden? Do you hate us? Ooh, there you go. Do you hate us, Bill? <laughs> I would like to propose a bill in Congress called Does Joe Biden Hate Us? Or wh whose fault is it? Joe Biden, Joe Manchin, or Chuck Schumer's? No? <laughs> All right, Napoleon to Legend, Joshua Con Russell. Love you guys. Thank you for joining us this Tuesday. We will see you uh, soon. Uh, I don't want to tell everybody just yet, but we'll see you soon uh, ish. <laughs> And to everybody else, um, thank you guys for joining us today, this lovely Tuesday, March 30th. We're going to have a, a, an interesting week. I'm going to be doing a lot of pre-tapes. You're going to see some interesting interviews next week. Um, what do we have? Some shout outs? I know that Harvey K is in the chat. Yeah, we know. We know this. Harvey K is in the chat on Twitch, on YouTube. As always, thank you, Harvey K, Professor Harvey K. Go check out his interview with Chris Smalls on It's a Small World on uh, YouTube. Shout out to This Is Revolution podcast for dropping by the YouTube live chat today. Thank you. You can check out This Is Revolution pod right here on YouTube for those on YouTube. And big shout out to Kitty Kyler subscribing at tier one and and for gifting channel uh, the channel a tier one subscription. That's very kind of you. Kyler Asado sends his love. I am writing a policy platform for my candidate right now, but it's hard to concentrate with the fire comments from the guests in Nomiki. I... Yeah, I, I guess I'm fiery today. <laughs> Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska. Tax the rich, don't milk dry cows. Pete B, they kick. Pete Buttigieg, agreed. All right, uh, who else do we have here? Oh, yeah, our algorithms. Thank you, Midi Docs and Mario, for working those algorithms. And of course, um, over at YouTube, the moderators, our moderators, Bob C, Choking the Orb, and Chuck Diesel. And over on Twitch, Dorian Sapiens, A Difficult Truth, Nug Wrangler, our means. And Nightbot, thank you for keeping those chat rooms troll free. To everybody else, thanks for watching, for listening. Go join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. The patrons are what keep us going. Um, seriously, it's it's we know it's difficult right now. So if you can't afford it, please reach out to us. We're happy to work something out. Um, and if you are a patron and you know you you're you're having difficulty, we totally understand. We can work with you too as well. So uh, join us over at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show, and if you're on YouTube, or if you're not, go go to YouTube later and like the video right now, right now. Last chance, this is the moment. Work those algorithms. We will see you tomorrow, stay in solidarity, and go Amazon workers.